Well, good morning. Thank you, Dr. Allen, for your very kind introduction and for the invitation to be here in chapel at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, as you indicated, I am in my third year as president of uh, your sister seminary in Fort Worth, Southwestern Seminary. And uh, though I have had uh, other invitations because of COVID, the arrangements had not uh, worked out. And so literally, this is the first invitation I've had to one of our sister seminaries to preach in chapel, Dr. Allen, and be able to take that. So I appreciate uh, the kindness to be here at uh, the other seminary that shares the I-35 corridor with, uh, with ours. If you get on I-35 South and keep going, you'll eventually get to Southwestern Seminary. And uh, Dr. Allen is correct. Southern Baptists, I say often in our collective wisdom, have decided that we would have uh, one global mission sending entity, one North American church planting entity, uh, one resource provider, one retirement solutions, uh, financial advising, one ethics and public policy entity, but six seminaries. And uh, that is a source of great strength. It's also a source at times of what we'll call creative tension. If you uh, listen to some voices, we can sound a whole lot more like the SEC rather than the SBC. And I realize because we're in Missouri and in Texas, we're in the SEC uh, nowadays. But I do want to say that um, it is a great encouragement to me uh, what is happening, not just on our campus in Fort Worth, but being here in Kansas City and across the other campuses of our Southern Baptist seminaries. Uh, you are part of something that literally is the envy of the world of accredited theological education because the average accredited seminary in North America has only 275 students in total enrollment. And so what the Lord has done here in Kansas City, what he's doing in Fort Worth and on the other campuses really is a sign that God has, I believe, marvelous plans and purposes for Southern Baptists despite ourselves at times. And if I may speak candidly, we are at a moment where... Uh, these are interesting moments to be Southern Baptist. Uh, if you watch what is happening on social media and in the broader landscape, uh, it seems like our reputation and our witness is not what we would want it to be. If you just do a quick Google search on Southern Baptist Convention, all kinds of stories are going to come up, uh, not just from the Baptist press, but from religion, news service, and other areas that candidly do not put us in the best light. Now, truth fears no light. And we should not fear the scrutiny that comes before a watching world, but it should be a, a warning to all of us, particularly those of us engaged in the ministry of theological education, particularly those of you who happen to be students here at Midwestern Seminary and the students who are watching online back at our seminary and beyond, in terms of what God demands and expects from us in this moment. And in thinking about what the Lord wanted me to share today, I was drawn to a particular passage, a familiar passage, one that I'm sure many of you have studied and preached yourselves, and that's Philippians chapter 1. I would encourage you to turn there, Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to pick up in verse 21, and I'm going to read down to verse 27. And uh, for those of you present here in our chapel this morning, let me invite you, if you would, to stand with me. We might honor the public reading of the Word of God together this morning. Can we do that? And let me just invite you to follow along in your hearts as I share this Word from God's Word. This is Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, going down to verse 27. And this morning I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. The Holy Spirit says to the pen of the Apostle Paul, for me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the word of our Lord, and thanks be to God this morning. Please be seated, and may God richly bless the reading and study of his word together. You know, of course, if you've had New Testament survey that uh, Paul wrote, not just the letter to the church at Philippi, but a variety of uh, New Testament epistles. And you know, of course, that the uh, predictable Pauline pattern was to uh, begin with a word of uh, salutation, a word of greeting, and normally then to kind of dive right in and attempting to uh, settle problems or issues or controversies present in that particular individual congregation. You can just go back a few pages in your New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians, and you're going to find a whole laundry list of issues. I've often said that must have been the National Enquirer Church of the New Testament with all of the issues going on there in Corinth. But as you will know, you don't find that same kind of approach here in this letter to the church at Philippi. In fact, if you jump back up to verse uh, 3, Uh, Paul simply begins after the salutation by saying, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Now, I know pastors who thank God for most remembrances of their churches, but there's always a situation or an individual or a story or such. But Paul says, I thank God for my every remembrance of you, always praising, praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We know, of course, the church of Philippi was very philanthropically generous. They invested and supported and sustained Paul's missionary ministry. And he goes on and talks about the adversity that he's faced there. And of course, he gets to the context of verse 21 where we picked up uh, in my reading with that great line, for me to live as Christ and to die is, is gain. And Paul mentions about the struggle that he has in terms of which is better, in terms of living and being with you, which is beneficial for you, for the ministry and the mission I can continue, versus going to be with Christ, which is far better. I'd much rather be with him than be here, but I think it's better in the Lord's will for me to be here with you. And then Paul does something very interesting. He writes, just one thing. He tries to bottom line it, if you will. He does something that I think is remarkable when it comes to thinking about what it means to actually live the Christian life in faithfulness and fidelity to what the New Testament calls you and I to be as the people of God. That's important because I wonder, and I realize again, I speak as the president of a theological seminary in the context of a sister theological seminary where we we love to focus upon all of the complexities and the intricacies of the faith, especially if you're engaged in research doctoral study. We expect you to do that and to dive into areas where uh, no man or woman has adequately probed before, where you're going to become the world's leading subject matter expert on a very narrow sliver or slice of some aspect of philosophy or theology or biblical studies, right? And so we, we love complexity and, and nuance and all of that, but I wonder if sometimes, particularly in terms of a ministerial context, 
where we can make overly complex and complicated something is, that is remarkably simple and straightforward. I mean, it doesn't take long if you uh, just do a quick Google search on resources for living the Christian life. You're going to find a plethora of pleasantly packaged uh, promotional materials and resources that all have titles like Three steps, five things, seven principles, 10 things, 12 things. You can even get as high as 21 irrefutable laws of leadership, right? And you wonder how so many people under the courses of our ministries and our churches can become easily discouraged and demoralized and disillusioned when it comes to, can I really live the Christian life in victory? Can I really experience the fullness of the power and the presence of God in my life? And while there is a place for nuance and complexity and all of the other things, I also think there is something powerful in that which is remarkably simple and straightforward. As a leader, I'm bombarded with information. Dr. Allen, I'm sure you are as well in the complexity of your role leading a seminary, and you've got vice presidents and others who are bringing you all kinds of data and things. And just on occasion, not to be rude, but just try to cut through all the stuff, I'll say to my leadership team, just bottom line it for me. What do I need to know? What do you want me to do? And in a sense, without the Philippians directly asking per se, Paul bottom lines it. When he writes, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, by the way, notice that uh, Paul does not primarily refer to them by their geographic setting or by their context. He doesn't refer to them as citizens of Philippi or as Roman subjects or people living there in that particular province. He references them not in terms of their spatio-temporal reality, but in terms of their spiritual and transformative reality. We are citizens truly of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And it's so easy for us at times to become so immersed and immense in what is happening in this world that we forget about where our ultimate citizenship, where our ultimate responsibilities truly lay. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I mean, that's really it, isn't it? Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or to put it differently, the real test of everything that we think, say, and do in the Christian life should be filtered or seen through the spectacles, not just of Scripture in general, but particularly in light of the gospel of Christ. A gospel that if we are believers in Jesus has changed us from the inside out. A gospel that has taken that which was previously unworthy. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul writes in Romans. There was nothing intrinsically good within us. The only thing we bring to the table in our own salvation is our sinfulness. That's all we have to offer him. We don't, we don't bring any intrinsic worth, any intrinsic merit, any intrinsic goodness. We are dead, alienated, estranged, separated, hostile, at enmity with God, enemies, the, the, the forensic condition of those apart from Christ is serious indeed. And yet when the gospel comes to us, by the work of the Holy Spirit, via the agency of gospel preaching, we are C-H-A-N-G-E 
D, were changed. Changed in such a way to where none of the credit can ever be ascribed to ourselves. That's one of the sinful human tendencies, isn't it? We always want to try to make salvation a synergistic effort that God did his part and we did our part. We're kind of splitting the credit 50-50 or even 75-25 or even 90-10 perhaps. But all of the glory, all of the, the victory, all of the accomplishment of salvation is all God and not us. The gospel is nothing about what I do. It is merely about what I receive as God's grace gift to me. Go back in 2 Corinthians 5, and that great verse, the gospel in a verse, verse 21, that he, God the Father, made the one, God the Son, who knew no sin, sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, not an infused righteousness, but an alien, an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is from outside of ourselves. The righteousness of Christ credited to us as our sin was credited to Christ in that great transaction on the cross. So we who were previously unworthy have been made worthy. And now what Paul is getting at here in Philippians 1 is, as those who've been made worthy by the gospel, live a life that bears out the reality of that gospel in worthy living that others may see the power of the gospel indeed as they hear the proclamation of the gospel in and through you by word. That is, frankly, a word we need to hear. It's a word we need to hear because one of the unfortunate realities, I think, of ministry today, even in our uh, supposedly post-Christian context, is still within the life of our churches, there are so many who believe that salvation is merely a get-me-out-of-hell-free card that enables me to be able to live a life of whatever I want to live, do whatever I want to do, and there's always going to be grace to cover over the things. And so what will often happen, particularly for those of you who are preparing for pastoral ministry, is you're going to have church members who will come to you, usually on a Sunday morning, usually about five or ten minutes before you're going to preach. And they're going to come to you and they're going to say, Now, Pastor... Is there really anything wrong with fill in the blank of whatever questionable behavior, practice, media consumption, activity, or recreational pursuit that they know deep down really they shouldn't do, but they really want to do it because it seems fun or cool or faddish or their friends are all doing it. They feel like they're missing out. And they want you as the pastor to say, well, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that because if the pastor says it's okay, then we know it's okay. And so it's not just socially acceptable. It's, it's now spiritually acceptable because the pastor's giving it a thumbs up, right? And what does that kind of mentality betray? It betrays such a perverted and distorted understanding of the Christian life that says that the real key to living the Christian life is let's see just how much hell we can have in our lives and still make it into heaven. Let's see just how much like the world we can be 
in popularity and acceptance and cultural conformity and still tack on Jesus because that's what you do to be good is you just kind of tack on Jesus in church and check the religious box and then live a life Monday through Saturday that is no different than everybody else in the broader pagan pool. And we wonder why our baptismal rates are declining rapidly. And we wonder why our members seem unmotivated to evangelize and to witness. And we wonder why it seems like at times we hear about gross sin and immorality happening in the context of our churches that seems no different from what happens in the corporate settings and in the secular environments. We may have the correct theology, but if that correct theology somehow enables us to live lives of unholiness and unrighteousness where we pervert and distort and misuse and corrupt people and things all in the name of some greater good because we're more theologically pure than the others then we have completely misunderstood what New Testament Christianity is all about. And that's why Even in a seminary chapel, one verse, one message, one thing. Because here's the reality. As you're here at Midwestern Seminary pursuing whatever degrees you're pursuing, these years are going to pass remarkably fast. And it won't be long before you're going to be back in this chapel with Dr. Allen and his presidential regalia, And he's handing you that hard-fought and well-earned Midwestern Seminary diploma as your Midwestern Seminary degree is confirmed. And diplomas are wonderful things. They look really good in offices. All of us who have them care about them. A lot of blood, sweat, toils, and tears goes into earning those things. Trust me. But the greatest testimony about the success of what happens on this campus is not the number of diplomas that hang on walls in offices or studies. It is by the number of you who go out and live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. That will be the testimony before a watching world that what happens on this hill in Kansas City really makes a difference. Because I've done this long enough, Dr. Allen has as well, that you get out in the hinterlands and there are always people out there who want to come up to you and tell you what one of your graduates did in some context. Because again, if I may speak bluntly and living in Texas, we're known for that, right? If one of you goes out and does something stupid in a church and you get fired, it doesn't just hurt you. It takes down everybody else who's got a Midwestern seminary degree or diploma attached to them. Every time. Don't go out and do stupid. I mean, that's that's profound, isn't it? I mean, you'd expect to hear that from a seminary president, right? Don't do that. Don't try to figure out how close you can come to the line without falling over because that line's always far closer than you think. live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And by the way, what is the fruit of that? Notice what Paul reminds the Philippians. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. And word always travels, doesn't it? What will he hear? 
that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Lives live worthy of the gospel of Christ are lives that will promote unity within the body of Christ. Why? Because the gospel always brings us to unity as we submit our wills to his will. And we submit our preferences to his opinions. The gospel will always bring us to unity because we are reminded in that moment what matters most. And what matters most is not my preferences, not my will, not my wishes, not the things that I want, but what matters is doing everything we can while we can to help as many people encounter Jesus in a life-changing and saving way. That's what matters most. And if we fail in that area, then we fail everywhere. You know, he goes on there in Philippians 2, making this point again about unity. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider our others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What is that? That's living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because that's exactly what Christ did. Because if you keep going there in Philippians 2, verses 5 and following, you get that great Christological hymn, Christ's self-sacrifice, his giving that he considered not himself first, but submission to the Father's will, submission to the divine mission of what matters most. Just one thing. When I was in uh, high school, we had a principal who was an old regular Baptist from West Virginia who'd gone south. I grew up in central Florida. He got tired of the cold winters there. And uh, every year when uh, school would begin, we'd gather together in the uh, cafeteria or the gymnasium, and we had uh, these things called the uh, student handbook or the code of conduct. You have one here at Midwestern Seminary. We have one at Southwestern Seminary as well, all digital nowadays, but it was still printed back then because I went to school in a time before Al Gore invented the Internet. And we'd gather together, and every year, that code of conduct, that student handbook, we get a little bit thicker with more and more legalese and more and more statutes and more and more rules and regulations because students were infinitely creative of thinking about things and doing things they weren't supposed to do that people didn't know they weren't supposed to do until somebody actually did it. Now, my old regular Baptist principal would hold up that code of conduct in his hand, and he would say, now... Um, you need to read this. You need to have your mom and dad sign it. But I want to bottom line this for you. I want to give you my one rule. That if you will simply follow my one rule, I can assure you, you're not going to have any issues with anything written in the code of conduct. And here was this one rule. Be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Doing what you're supposed to be doing acting like a lady or a gentleman at all times, period. 
be where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to be doing, acting like a lady or a gentleman at all times, period. He said, if you can do that, you will never have any issues with anything in the code of conduct because everything in the code of conduct basically is a more elaborate description of some violation of that one rule. I mean, that's profound, isn't it? When it comes to the Christian life, not just for your time here at Midwestern Seminary, but for wherever you may serve in God's economy. Philippians 1.27, I believe, is God's way through Paul of giving us the one rule, of bottom lining it. And so I leave you with this, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, may all of you at Midwestern Seminary live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That whether I come back here or not, I will hear about you, about how the Lord is using you to make a difference across Missouri, America, and to the nations for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Loving Father, we're so thankful for these moments together around your word. God, you are so wonderfully good to us. You are better than we deserve because what we deserve is to be eternally separated from you. What we deserve is death and hell and punishment. But Lord, in Christ, through the gospel, by the power of your spirit, you've given to us everything. And Father, in light of everything you've given to us, you honestly ask very little from us except to be found faithful as your people that you may make us fruitful for your kingdom service. And so, oh God, I pray for these brothers and sisters here at Midwestern Seminary. I pray, Lord, that they will be men and women who will live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. That in and through them, the ministries they lead, the churches they serve, the work that they do, that more people will encounter Jesus. That your church will be built up not for our sake, not for our glory, O oh Lord, but for the fame of your name, for the furtherance of your kingdom. Lord, continue to bless Dr. Allen and all of the team here, the faculty. Lord, may you continue to use Midwestern Seminary as a place where the gospel is taught, proclaimed, and lived out. For this is my prayer, and I pray these things by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And amen.